From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Ivan Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. 2021 has just started, but I know this week and a half has felt like a whole year for so many of us. If you're listening to this, please take some time for yourself, stop doom scrolling, and we hope today's episode will be a pleasant distraction. We have none other than Hugh Grant, who stars in the thrilling HBO miniseries The Undoing. And just a warning, there are spoilers in this interview, so if you haven't seen the end of The Undoing, I'd watch that before you listen to another moment of this episode. You probably know Hugh best from rom-coms like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary, as well as his fantastic turn as a villain in Paddington 2. Well, you know, Hugh's movies are so iconic and played a lot in my apartment. Uh, this holiday, I was watching music and lyrics and Love Actually. And, you know, as I was watching them, it was a little surreal to remember this is a killer that I'm watching now. But, you know, in our chat, Hugh told me that he actually enjoys playing the more sinister roles. Even in my earlier life, pre-Four Weddings, I was doing darker parts and they were more fun. You know, playing Mr. Nice Guys is really hard. It's hard not to make them boring and too good to be true. We'll get to Yvonne's conversation with Hugh Grant in just a couple minutes. COVID-19 is moving fast. And so are LA Times journalists. Our job is to separate fact from fiction because you also help spread the truth when you are informed. Because in a society where we all have to stand six feet apart, the LA Times is our connection. It's become our community. We're going to be here giving you information to offer a little bit of clarity. Stay safe, be informed, take care of one another. We'll get through this. Subscribe at latimes.com. Yvonne's conversation with Hugh Grant is coming up shortly, but first, let's hear from our critic Glenn for Glenn Whip's Awards Minute. Happy New Year. Although it looks like we pretty much picked up right where we left off, doesn't it? A holiday break is usually the time when Oscar voters power through watching all the films in the awards season conversation. This year, not so much. For one thing, with the Oscars still more than three months away, there's little urgency right now for Academy members to be doing their homework. And of course, we've all had more pressing issues on our mind. As one Academy member told me this week, this is really a challenging time. It's for me and for everyone. People don't have the bandwidth right now to concentrate. And that's okay. I mean, there are bigger things to think about right now that we need to focus on. I guess my hope for the new year is that we'll have the time and the mental space for the beauty of movies again. Because there's some beautiful movies out there, and, and I think they'll help us. We just need to get to that place where we're able to let them into our lives. And now on to Yvonne, and let's get to your interview with Hugh Grant. Hugh, I'm still in so much shock. So much shock. How are you feeling this morning? Well, this afternoon here, 
I'm in a very strange position. I haven't seen this uh, series since the uh-huh. summer, an earlier cut, and my experience of it has been when I allow myself to look on Twitter to see how people are reacting to it. And so uh, all I know about last night is looking at Twitter for an hour. And I was very worried about the um, last episode, particularly the end of the last episode. I didn't know if it would be marvellous or laughable in some way. But I, it's, we seem to have got away with it. So hooray. How was it looking at the tweets come in? Are you somebody that like likes to see what people are saying? It, nothing could be more stupid moronic really than to look at twitter about yourself and your work because you can only get bruised and smashed and uh, there's plenty of that my god Hugh looks 180 years old he looks like crumpled newspaper he aged like milk <laughs> it's all savage stuff but as i said before the fact that they seem to like that ending was uh, was boosting I had a happy breakfast. <laughs> when did you sort of realize people were really digging this show, that people were really invested in coming up with their own theories of who did it? When did that occur to you? Uh, well, I could see it building over the last six weeks. And then uh, the terror was they're so much enjoying these theories and, and, and some of them are so elaborate. It's going to be a massive disappointment to them when it's just, you know, the guy hiding in plain sight. What were some of the wildest theories you heard? Uh, I think my absolute favorite was they thought it was my mother. She's the one person I didn't think of. I was going through everybody, everybody, and coming up with my own schemes. What was your theory then? I thought it was the friend of Grace. Oh, Sylvia. Lily Rabe's character. And then I was like, it has to be Donald Sutherland because those, you know, the eyebrows are menacing. Eyebrows give you away. But it was not him either. No, I know. But they're all cunning performances and it's all beautifully written to throw everyone off the scent. But it made my job in a way hard, but in a way easier because you might think, well, it's very hard given all the circumstantial evidence pointing at Jonathan for audiences not to think, well, it's just him. But actually, the necessity, therefore, of me having to be entirely credible or as credible as I possibly could be in every moment. You know, it wasn't me, I didn't do it, and I do love my wife, and I do love my boy, pointed me to the furthest extreme of narcissism and sociopathy. You know, this is a guy who believes his own lies. That's how I played it. Well, before we continue, like, I just jumped right in because, as I said, I'm still reeling from the finale. But we're talking to you the morning after or for you the afternoon after the finale aired. Uh, tell me where you're calling us from and how have you been dealing with quarantine these past few months? Well, I'm in a hotel in the middle of London because I, I'm so bad with computers that I am not allowed to try and do these things by myself. So I've got two incredibly bored people sitting next to me who have to control the computer. Uh, and one of them tries to make me look not 180. And uh, <laughs> here we are in Soho, and it's deserted. It is it is just weird, a ghost town. I could drive here. No one's ever driven into the middle of London in the last 30 years. I just drove here, and I, you can park. It's In a way, it's quite agreeable. How has it been for you? Do you have cabin fever or not so much? I'm an old man with young children, so to be locked up at all is brutal. But to be locked up with tiny children, albeit ones that I adore, is rough. Have you made a lot of forts? I feel like that's all my nieces and nephews want to do. Well, no, I play girly games. You know, I've said this in other interviews. I, I play Barbie with them. I love Barbie and I love Princess What's It from Frozen. And I make them have lesbian affairs. And what do I do with my boy? Oh, well, we just throw rugby balls at each other in the back garden <laughs> until he cries. That's nice. That sounds lovely. The perfect quarantine. Perfect quarantine. <laughs> 
Well, tell me, how were you approached about The Undoing? Was it Nicole Kidman calling you up? Was it Suzanne? How did your involvement sort of come to be? Well, I suppose it came through my agent, but I did know both of those people. I, I knew Susanna Beer a bit from an, an aborted film we'd nearly made 10 years ago. And I've known Nicole in, on and off, you know, bumping into her socially. And it was an amazing offer on, on paper. I mean, th- those two, this brilliant script by David Kelly. It was HBO, kind of Rolls Royce of TV and already incredible crew attached. Anthony Dodd, Noble, people like that. So I sort of knew I, I was going to do it. But I like to make a big fuss first. And in a way, it was legitimate because they only showed me one. They only had one script. And I, ne- I needed to know how it ended. In particular, I needed to know, am I guilty or not? I, I'm uh, not sure I would have done it if I hadn't been guilty. Why? Well, it's so much more interesting to be this fucked up sociopath than to just be unfaithful husband who spends six episodes apologizing. Had you been hesitant at all about the sort of way that it plays on this public persona that we've, you know, come to know you as, like this lovable person? Was there hesitancy about that? Like you wanted there to be a payoff to that? No, no. If anything, the reverse. I think I'm trying to destroy my previous existence. Really? It's something like that you're on that path? Yeah, I mean, the last five jobs I've done, they've all been to some degree pretty unlikely. Darker. Well, the last yeah. four have been very dark, yeah. But there's intention of trying to do away with what we've come to know you as? Uh, maybe there is that, but also they're just more fun. I mean, even in my earlier life, pre-four weddings, I was doing darker parts and they were more fun. Any actor will tell you the same thing. It's, you know, playing mm-hmm. Mr. Nice Guys is really hard. It's hard not to make them boring and too good to be true. Did you discuss with, with David and Suzanne, like, how dark you were willing to go i mean did it push the boundaries even for you no no the darker the better and um susanna and i were definitely at the darkest end of the spectrum she she was the one who wanted to shoot the murder and i agreed with her entirely uh david actually never scripted the murder at all so we sort of did that almost as a sort of a splinter film yeah i mean it it was very dark I, i I don't know what's left in the edit now, but I mean, you know, when I'm smashing away with that hammer, I did experiment with various things. I, one time I spit out bits of her brain that have flown into my mouth. And there was also a take where I, when he's finished hammering, her brain is just pulp there. The the doctor in him, the scientist is rather interested. And I did a take where I'm sort of poking around with my finger and having a look at it. And that did gross out some of the crew, I must say. I would have been grossed out. That's a lot. Yeah. What what went into preparing for shooting that moment? Well, I went out and did some murders in New York. <laughs> I think that really helped. I mean, I feel bad about the victims, but it helped. Of course. But more seriously, was that a hard thing to sort of get into the brain space of filming? And how did you do it? Well, it's all the psychology of it. He is the great Jonathan Fraser who has never had any setbacks in in his meteoric rise to fame as a doctor. And he's always enjoyed the adulation of his peers, of other scientists, other doctors, of his family adore him. So he simply cannot have that threatened, even though it's by his own weakness and stupidity with having an affair with this woman. So the fact that she's now threatening to expose him or, or she's behaving dangerously, you know, when she's saying, oh, I'm going to get uh, Miguel together with your son, Henry. I think they could really have fun having hot chocolate together. 
the danger to his bubble of ego is so intense that he explodes. And I always thought Jonathan had probably exploded once or twice before in his life, before he was married to Grace in events that have been sort of covered up elegantly. So that's how I got into it, just through the psychology of it, really. Did you sort of create a bit of a backstory for him? Or did you and David talk a lot about who this man is before we meet him? No, I, di I didn't uh, talk to David so much about that. But I do always, and I did in this case, write a huge backstory. Very, very detailed. It's pages and pages and pages. And, th and then all over the script, there are hieroglyphics of me working out the thought process behind everything I say or do. And it was complicated because really I'm two characters and they had nicknames. The real Jonathan, who's this crazed narcissist, I called John Boy because I always imagined he'd been called that as a boy mm -hmm. at school. You know, John Boy was sort of very spoiled. So John Boy's thoughts were like JB and what he was thinking. And then there would be Innocent Jonathan, this projection of that he was trying to give to the world and what he was thinking. They very often were at variance. And you had to decide on one or the other in every different moment. But almost always, you'd have to favor IJ, Innocent Jonathan, because if you showed John Boy, it would be game over. Did you go in trying to understand him, or do you have to not try to understand what could lead him to do this? And how did you sort of reconcile his profession? In those moments of him as a doctor, do you think he really felt for those kids? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I think he didn't. I think he felt for how wonderful he was being. And he was feeding off the adoration, thanks, gratitude of his patients and of their parents. And he was getting off on just how marvelous he was. Well, it took about five months to shoot this series is what I read. And, and you shot it at a sequence. So did you find that hard sort of keeping track of what you were playing or did all those sort of notes on the script and hieroglyphics sort of remind you, I'm this right now, I'm this right now, think about these things? Yeah, that's what they're there for. That's what they're there for. And uh, yeah, all that, all that work was done before day one. And, and I think we did actually shoot the murder in the first week, which was quite an wow. introduction to the film. And especially for poor Matilda, who played Eleanor, who had to show up in New York, which was the first time ever in America and be thrust on a set and have this awful old man kiss her and grope her and then kill her. And she was very nice about it. How do you sort of get acclimated with a new scene partner when you're sort of having to do all that? Is Do you even sort of have niceties beforehand or you just sort of go into it? Um, well, we tried to have niceties, but it's hard. It's, it's seven o'clock in the morning. It's freezing cold. It's hard. It's hard. You just have to be um, sporting. And she was incredibly sporting. She's a brilliant girl. <laughs> and a, a, such a star, I think. Is it sort of a cathartic release to sort of be able to purge your darker side into a character like Jonathan? Like to do all these things that as, you know, a compassionate person you would never do. But to sort of like let any buildup of anger or anything like that, like have a sort of release there's so many people that I'd love to murder. And it's it's lovely to at least get to play acted. You won't reveal those names, will you? Probably not. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> Let me know. Well, talk to me about what it was like working with Nicole. Like, what did you notice or sort of 
find interesting about her process? Well, she's um, she likes it all fresh and invented on the spot. There's nothing pre-rehearsed with her. And I got the feeling she wouldn't welcome rehearsal. And I, you know, there's some actors who, who like to rehearse and some who hate it. And really good film actors, generally speaking, don't like rehearsal because they know uh, the camera prefers things that are minted in that moment. She's very much of that uh, breed. I mean, it's not to say she's not very well prepared. She's impeccably prepared, but she wants something to happen between the actors mm. right there and then. And uh, that was great. It's lovely. There's nothing worse than acting with someone and you realise, oh, I see, that's the performance they've been giving in their bathroom mirror for the last three months. And they're going to give that whatever happens. Well, I noticed, I mean, I don't know if you saw this in scrolling on Twitter, but I sure did with the people that, you know, I follow, is people were sort of really impressed by the facial expressions in the courtroom that you were giving as Grace, who Nicole Kidman plays, is sort of in implicating Jonathan, like the controlled rage that you sort of channeled in your expressions was quite like it's meme worthy because I think in some way or form in 2020, we've felt those kinds of emotions. I'm just sort of curious, like, do you even remember like what you were thinking in those moments as, you know, she's saying these things and you're like, as Jonathan wanting to just get up there and say something to her or, you know, refute what she's saying? Well, I had it all plotted out in my hieroglyphics for, you know, the various gradations of, wait a minute, is something fishy going on here? Yes, I think something fishy is going on here. I can't believe this is happening. What can I do to stop it? All that. But of course, you know, and I, I, I performed that as the camera, I think, was tracking slowly in on my face. But you've no idea how they're going to edit it. You know, they can take the reaction you wanted for part C and put it next to part Z. So you just never know. And uh, I have to look at the final cut and see if it's worked out. I, I do remember it being quite difficult, that bit. And there being big discussions in the courtroom at the time of, okay, when's the moment where we know she's actually screwed him? You know, all that. Could you understand the world of the undoing, like up to a point, like this elite world, this world of private schools and, you know, big money? Could you understand that to a certain point? I live that kind of life in West London. And my brother lives in the Upper East Side and has lived that life entirely as a banker. Mm -hmm. So this world is like, you recognized it. Yeah, for sure. A perfect glass of wine makes all the difference. And the LA Times Wine Club, powered by First Leaf, can deliver that and more right to your front door. All you have to do is take a short quiz to determine your preferences. Then six bottles of award-winning wine personalized to your taste will be shipped directly to you. You'll get six bottles of wine for only $39.95, plus free shipping. Sign up today at latimes.wine slash podcast. You've mentioned in the past that you've dealt with stage fright. And I think I read that you went through a period or a phase of asking directors to say commence instead of action. 
which I found very interesting. Uh, the word um, action terrifies did, me. It's like, like Pavlov's dog. I get this awful sh- burst of adrenaline that chokes me when I hear the word action. And the, the worst is Stephen Frears, to whom I really owe this new career I have because he's the guy who offered me Florence Foster Jenkins and then subsequently a very English scandal. And he's a great genius. But the way he says action is the same way he's been saying action since the 1960s. And uh, it's in, it's brutal. Action! Even in the most intimate scene. And you say, Stephen, come on. That scares me. Oh, so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's right. Okay, let's go again. I'll do a very quiet one. And then they say, all right, take two and action! He can't stop himself. <laughs> Is that something you noticed early on into your acting career that you sort of had this weird reaction to? Or did it come later? I think it came later. I, I started to yeah, get spooked mm-hmm. round about Notting Hill. I, it was the first time I yeah, went into a perfectly normal scene, really not difficult, rehearsed it fine, everything. And then they said, well, he's going to set up the lights now. You know, we'll probably be ready in about an hour. And during that hour, I'm just melted down. I got some weird attack of this stage fright out of the blue. And I went back on the set. And, you know, it was horrifying. I, I was schwitzing from both armpits. I had to bring blow dryers and I couldn't remember my lines. And it's just weird. Did you have that sort of experience working on The Undoing? Was there like... Do you know, I don't think I did have moment? a bad panic attack. Not a bad one. Comedy tends to trigger me more than drama because it's so horribly black and white. The thing's either going to be funny or not funny. With, with, with drama, there's a much more of a sort of grey area in between where you can, you know, land. And also I discovered such a simple trick that I wish I'd learned earlier in my career, which is if they're going to pick you up from your hotel at 6.30 in the morning, get up at 5 and go for a run. And it's amazing the difference it makes. It just, just lowers the... The cortisol levels. I've been an infinitely better actor since I started going for a run every morning. Well, until recently, you had stayed away from television since like the 90s, right? After what you were rejected for Jilly Cooper's writers. Yes, I was. Well, I wasn't Um, even allowed to have an audition. Yeah. Wow. Was that something you were really gunning for? And and what about that No, I think it was a very low grade production, but that's how low I'd sunk by then. And from then you were like, "I'm, I'm not doing TV? No, no, I, I can't remember what happened after that. I think I still, I limped along doing some other films and I did these funny, yeah, Euro pudding films, very obscure. And then suddenly Four Weddings came along and then I had this film career and uh, TV didn't really arise again until a very English scandal. As an actor, like, what are the sort of roles or projects you're hungry for now that you weren't in your 20s or 30s? Well, I've always just been hungry for well-written stuff. And um, it's surprisingly hard to find. It's, you know, there's a lot of boxes that you need to tick. It's got to be well-written. It's got to be a good director. It's got to be a part that's fun and interesting. And then lastly, and this is the key one, for me anyway, I have to think the whole thing's going to be entertaining. I sometimes see other actors accepting really interesting parts, but I know that script. I've read it, and it's not going to entertain anyone. I can't bring myself to get up early in the morning and go and do it if it's not entertaining. What was it about A Very English Scandal that got you to be like, okay, I think I will do TV? I mean, it was a brilliant, like, story. One that I didn't know was, you know, based on a true story until, you know, I started doing my own research. Um, But I know you did just as much research as I did. Like, what did you find fascinating about that story? 
Uh, well, I knew the story anyway because I, I grew up with it. I mean, it was all mm-hmm. happening. It was a big news item and when I was about 17, 18. And, um, you know, we all thoroughly enjoyed it, especially as sort of teenage schoolboys because it was full of Monty Python-esque debunking of the British establishment and, you know, sex and silly jokes. And it was all fabulous. So I, I knew the history and it also very much appealed to me to be going back into the 60s and 70s, which is the first 20 years of my life. And that whole world, which is interesting in itself and, and doubly interesting, I think, because I have this theory that life pre the internet was more interesting significantly than life post internet. People yeah. were more private. They, they, they spoke to each other more. They had more interesting and meaningful friendships and enemies. I think we live a bleak, rather bland internet life now. Well, The Undoing was the last production you worked on before the pandemic hit, right? Does it feel like a distant memory, like thinking of how you were able to sort of work without sort of fear of catching something like this, you know, disease? Like, what do you even remember about that experience? Because it feels like it might be a while before we're back to something like that. I know, now we realize how lucky we were. I mean, I'm sure I moaned continuously for six months because that is my modus operandi. You know, God, the days are long and, you know, I'm so tired. And why do I have to get up so early? And you know, haven't we shot this scene before? And blah, 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 moan, moan, moan. Um, but I now realize, of course, life was heaven. You know, we were free. I could mm-hmm. sit in the bar of the hotel in the evening and watch people and drink my whiskey. And, you know, I, oh, God, I miss it. Enough, enough already with the lockdowns. It's a lot. Well, you actually, you know, you said that you experienced COVID. And I wonder if you could share, like, what that was like for you. Are, are you somebody that is able to remain calm in a situation like that? I feel like I would just think of all the worst case scenarios that can happen. But were you able to sort of think positively I think there were little moments of uh, dabs of panic here and there because we didn't know much about it back then. And, uh, you know, the the, the flu-like symptoms were nothing. That was fine. It was just a bit uncomfortable. Loss of smell was a bit sinister, but, you know, it's not going to kill you. But the occasional uh, overwhelming impulse to fling open every door and window in the house because you just felt you weren't getting enough air, that was slightly alarming, I have to say. And I remember buying one of those little things you put on your finger to tell you how much oxygen you have in your blood and checking it obsessively. Oh, my gosh. Well, before I leave you, you know, this is a time where, you know, a lot of us are at home either with our kids or with ourselves and trying to pass time. And a lot of us are watching a lot more things these days. Is there something either in TV or film that you really enjoyed recently or even a program that you've found yourself watching with your kids that you never thought you would? Well, of course, I mainly watch Peppa Pig. There's nothing I can't tell you about Peppa Pig. But I have also, I mean, I, I've been loving the, the uh, Queen's Gambit. Because my son is anyway a, a very keen chess player. Smashes me. So we've loved that. And, uh, well, I have been watching The Crown. And, you know, no television is more beautifully made than The Crown. Irresistibly beautifully made. It's so good. Do you go down the rabbit hole of Googling everything that happens on The Crown or you're not that like obsessed? Well, I remember it all, you know, (laughs) that's the thing. Now now we're up to speed. 
I know Pete Morgan quite well who wrote it. And I think, uh-huh. he, you know, he's a great genius. But I, I have detected a slight change in tone in this one. And I, I'd love to talk to him about it sometime. I, I feel like the royal family, are, <laughs> I don't know, he's, he, he seems to be less fond of them than he was in the other series. <laughs> Well, Hugh, thank you so much for taking the time. It was really a pleasure. Um, I didn't get your thoughts on Nicole Kidman's coats, but I guess we can wait for another conversation on that. We'll have to have an hour, especially for that. You know, Yvonne, I, I was glad to hear you talk about the differences between working in TV and film. Hugh Grant and his co-star on The Undoing, Nicole Kidman, are both such genuine movie stars, and they've both done such great work recently on TV. They have, and you know, you know who is also doing such great work on TV in that series? Nicole Kidman's Coats. Did you have any idea something like that could take off, Mark? I I can never predict what people become obsessed with. I mean, there's lots to think about with that show. When I was watching it, her coats was not like the first thing that came to my mind, but... It was her curly tendrils, right? Do you have any coats that you're fond of it made me realize oh crap like do people really notice coats in this way like because mine are very dull I I have a lot of jackets Uh, recently I was complimented on one of them by the cashier at the pet store (laughs) and I got super excited now I want to can you describe the jacket for me uh it's just a pretty basic like kind of workwear jacket but it's one I'm you know I'm a recent acquisition and one I'm currently fond of so it was really nice to have someone notice it yeah you know it's cold and I have this like a very soft pink, like, pea coat, but I feel like it's too bold and loud. Like, I just always end up going with my black one, but, you know, maybe I should change things up. I don't know. Be like Nicole in The Undoing or uh, or or um, Kaylee Cuoco in uh, The Flight Attendant, who also people are obsessing on the coats for. Exactly. Did you have a chance to watch that over the break? I, I have seen The Flight Attendant, yes. And was there anything else that you have been watching recently, Yvonne? Well, Mark, I am happy to say that I saw The Godfather. Did you watch just the first one or did you watch more than one? I rented the first one and I want to watch the second one. I haven't had time. Like I went fully down another rabbit hole of of just looking up like every photo of Al Pacino and Diane Keaton from the making of that movie. And then just another rabbit hole of looking up everything about James Caan of that time. So it just, it really sucked me in. And now I'm like, I have to keep going. Oh, I'm so excited about this. Yes. How about you? What did what did you catch up on or finally watch? Well, I have been spending a lot of time recently watching stuff for Sundance, which is coming up. And so those are things I'm like under embargo and like disallowed from talking about. But um, just recently, kind of over the holidays, the filmmaker Joan Micklin-Silver passed away. I had the great honor of actually writing her obituary for the the paper. And so I've been kind of revisiting some of her films. I don't say she's underappreciated, but she's just someone who I think you just can't overvalue. So it's been exciting to see her reputation and standing kind of growing over the past couple of years, even before she passed away. You know, she made a film called Hester Street that stars Carol Kane when Carol Kane was only 21. She also had a movie called Between the Lines that has an early appearance by Jeff Goldblum, another called Chili Scenes of Winter, and a movie that I, I think if you've never seen it, 
Yvonne. It's called uh, Crossing Delancey that stars Amy Irving and Peter Riegert that genuinely is like a perfect rom-com. It came out about the same time as Moonstruck. And a lot of people sort of compare it to to that. And it's about uh, a young single Jewish woman in New York City and the pickle salesman that she seems destined to fall in love with. That is like my dream like scenario. You don't get that scrolling through Tinder. I've never seen a pickle salesman on their mark. Um, I'm going to definitely watch this. I assume I can find it and rent it uh, online. So thank you for that recommendation. And now next week, I'm going to be sitting down with Rada Blank who wrote, starred, and directed in the film The 40-Year-Old Version. It's about a playwright who decides to become a rapper as she's nearing her 40th birthday. I'm just trying to reflect my experience as a person who's getting older in a society that doesn't always value women as they age. You know, we've been put out to pasture when, you know, we still are making self-discoveries. Get that chat with Rada in our very next episode. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Mark Olson, and my colleague, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin, and special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the Los Angeles Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and The Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone, and see you next week.